I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Executive Chairman Neil Eckert and Group CEO Trevor Carvey are the team behind Conduit Re, a new London-listed, Bermuda-based reinsurer. Neil is one of the insurance industry's most successful serial entrepreneurs, so when someone of his experience and pedigree senses an opportunity, we should all take notice. Conduit's single-location, pure reinsurance design is quite different from its class of 2020 peers, and here we go deep into the pair's thinking behind why they have set up things the way they have. Neil and Trevor are direct and easy to talk to, and I think their answers are really illuminating. The first voice you hear will be Neil's. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Trevor and Neil, thank you so much for giving us some time. You're busy building a brand new business. I know you must have done this 100 times when you're pitching to investors, but why not take the opportunity just to start off and give us a quick overview of Conduit Re and your business plan? We started talking actually towards the end of 2019. That's Trevor and myself. We thought that the market was going to really start hardening. This does predate COVID. And so we started to put a plan together. And as we got into 2020, it began to dawn on people that there was a global pandemic. And then it started to dawn on people that there were serious insurance implications. And we put the plan together and we thought there was an opportunity to raise money in the UK stock market. And we had various discussions with potential cornerstone investors. I was very attracted to Trevor's plan, which was a very broad, spread, diverse plan. We've known each other since the mid-80s, rather worryingly. And then the summer transpired. We got into the IPO full-blown and closed in late November. And here we are today with a company some wonderful people and jolly pleased to be in business. So it's a reinsurance plan. Why make it a pure reinsurer rather than we've seen some of the startups are balancing between the two and others really focusing on specialty? When we were looking at the way of going to market, 
and the various, if you like, product offerings that we could bring. Went back to experience. I've been involved in a number of startups, reinsurance only. We're able to bring, both with Neil and myself, a number of key relationships that we knew we had a very good following in the market in the class of reinsurance, reinsurance treating. And what I'd seen previously was building that diversified model across a broad spread of reinsurance balanced classes in a rising market is a really powerful tool, a really powerful way to build a business. In talking to investors and articulating what we wanted to do, it was important for us to convince them that we could deliver on the plan and playing to our strengths in that reinsurance treaty area was to us, if you like, a no-brainer. So we said that's where we want to be, that's how we want to balance it, and the task that we really had in building that plan out through the end of 2020 was a great deal. It was around the recruitment of the people to enable the building out of that plan and those classes. Neil, obviously you've done all this before many times. What was your thinking in terms of launching straight into an IPO, being a public company from day one and not taking other capital raising routes? These days, it seems to be that there's private equity available up to billions available. So I'd love to go through your thinking of why you've taken this option. So we do know the private equity houses. There are a limited number of very specialist units that get involved with the magic billion-dollar startups. But that route does involve initially getting private investment and then probably coming to market with an implied assumption of coming to market at one and a half times book value in three, four years' time. There had been an enormous amount of consolidation in the UK stock market. Amlin disappeared. Brit Mile Shop disappeared. Nove disappeared, Chaucer disappeared, Omega, and the same in Bermuda. So there was a genuine shortage of available stocks. There was not one available stock you could invest in, which was legacy-free and a startup designed to take advantage of the market conditions that we saw. So we thought that we would be well-received. I've also done accelerated IPOs in Brit, in Climate Exchange. It's a path that has been followed on numerous occasions. And by the time we'd seen a few cornerstone investors, we knew that we would get a very good reception. And it does take away the worry about potential exit. We are in a fortuity business. You know, we are now there as a public stock, billion dollar market capitalization, and we're in business. So the mission is to get to premium valuations as soon as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just if we execute on the business plan, I think that will happen. About the plan itself, on a scale of very conservative on one end and ultra radical and sort of disruptive on the other end. How would you be ranking your aspirations with this business? We often hear that expression about disrupting a market or disrupting in the realms of reinsurance. I think it's an interesting concept because when you consider, given the size of the limits that are there in the marketplace that we participate on, it's essentially a subscription market. So I think we're always going to be one of the entities that takes its place in the market. And our aim was to do that responsibly with the right degree of expertise within the team. So whether we're very conservative or ultra radical, you know, it's on that spectrum. I'd say probably that we were tending towards the conservative end in that respect. We're bringing good sound techniques to the way in which we price business. We have a lot of experience in that. And as I say, being part of a subscription market, you essentially take your place in an orderly fashion in the market. And I'd say that probably would typify how we've gone about our business today. 
And I suppose another part of being an orderly member of the market as a reinsurer, that looking at your business plan, you will buy retros. So I presume that means that as you build up, you have that retro cost as a bit of a drag in the first couple of years as you build up your premium base. Does that mean you shouldn't be expecting any real returns until probably year three or four? Just a quick word on the retro, and then Neil, you'd probably like to comment as well. The retrocessional purchasing for us is a relatively small part of our plan and our cost. We've always been and always will be an entity that looks to balance the exposures on a gross basis into the portfolio. So we're not heavily reliant on a retrocessional purchase. Having said that, we were able to bring with us and also the team a number of relationships in that retro purchasing space. So the program that we bought around the business has been put together using some of those relationships, which we're very grateful. But it's not an over-reliance, I would say, that Conduit has on the retrocessional product. It's about balancing the business on a gross inwards portfolio dynamic. Mark, there was quite a lot of detail. Well, one of the interesting things about doing an IPO is you have to publish so much your business plan in the prospectus. And so we did publish the basic outline of what we would be purchasing from a retrocessional perspective. And as Trevor says, it's a very small percentage of our premium income. The other things I said, in terms of the way that earnings develop, what we did also put up during the IPO was the earning development of previous startups in what we regard as similar markets. So we very much honed in on the class of 2001 and the class of 2005. And the sort of companies that we analysed were Arch, Lancashire, Montpellier. Validus. Yeah, Validus. And endurance and yes you do have a ramp during year one but by the time you get to years two especially years three you are making an appreciable return on equity and you've got the benefit the downside of a startup is the ramp in earnings the upside of a startup is legacy free which in our view i mean i really do have a view that the years 2015 to 2020 are going to be painful and there will be Potentially, you're on back gear development, and that's one of the other strategies are coming to market. You asked about disruption. If there's one thing I'd love to see us do, and it's not really disruption, but it's to really differentiate ourselves in the level of service that we give to brokers and students, and also the fact that we will use technology. We're not an insure tech, but we will use technology to enhance the level of service that we can deliver to the marketplace. The last company that went straight to market was Lancashire. That was very much a company that was not a growth company. It was let's keep the balance sheet at the right size and we'll give back any excess capital with special dividends or large buybacks. Are you going to be a growth company or are you going to be more that kind of company that will want to keep that return on equity up? Some of those companies in previous staff, Lancashire did launch into the 2006 market. They had a fantastic first year. If one looked at the rating charts that we put up, by 2007, 8, 9, market rates were coming back down. We feel that this marketplace is more like a 2001, 2 time market. And I think if we stick to the plan that we've got, we can deliver long-term shareholder growth while still managing our capital in a responsible fashion. I mean, I do believe in paying dividends, and we set out in the prospectus that we would be paying a dividend of between 5 and 6%, and we'll stick to that. But I do think I mean, this market, in my view, has legs. And so far, we've been 
really pleased with what we're seeing. That strong conviction that you have, and presumably has COVID only simply put more uncertainty in there? And did it just accelerate your planning even further in terms of your expectations of better returns? I think so. We always said that the plan wasn't built off of COVID, but as we were working on the plan over the last 12 months, it undoubtedly accelerated the uncertainty, I would say, in some of the classes. So I think that reserving uncertainty, the degree to which the market has got its hands around the COVID number, if you like, which we could still argue and debate, that I think has added to the general sense of risk aversion probably in the market. And that's definitely been a sense gone into the market, looked at pricing. The market is generally held firm, still in a number of classes. And I think there's a risk concern that sits around a number of the products that have been written. Yeah, I think the other thing about COVID was we've used the phrase the year of the unmodeled loss. We've had two very serious examples, one of the recent winter storm in Texas and COVID. I think that is introducing new challenges in terms of pricing. And there is real momentum the primary carriers have got to get their heads around the loss ratios that have been experienced over the last five years. It's interesting with that, that anecdotally, the market has been moved by insurers feeling pain and changing their behaviour, reducing limits, pulling out of different lines, rather than reinsurers. So as a reinsurer joining the marketplace, how do you view that? Is it less of an opportunity as a reinsurer? Perhaps do you wish that you'd had an insurance plan, given that all the action seems to be in insurance, or are you happy as a reinsurer just picking up the rate rises anyway, because we're all part of the same market? This is exactly why when we went to the market and put the plan together, we have a delineation, if you like, a balance in the portfolio between quota share and excessive loss. But yes, you're right. You know, We're not in that insurance primary policy issuance business, but we're right alongside those in quota share. A number of the classes that we have in our plan have come to us in our first few months of business. And we've been presented with the quota share and the excess of loss treaties in those classes of business. And when you look at them side by side at the moment, you're right, that primary market has been responding more quickly. So we've tended to put more of our capacity at the moment in that quota share space in some of the classes and not into excess of loss for exactly that reason. But that's, I think, a strength of the model where you can flex between different product types in the same class. And who knows down the line, if the market really starts to turn around, then you could well see us perhaps writing more on the excess of loss in a class and less in quota share. And that's part of building a diversified plan and optimizing the return over time. Is the abundance of capital in reinsurance anything to do with that? Would you like to be pushing harder or is it simply that you can't because the latest Willis report, for example, is estimating that reinsurance capital was up 7% at year end 2020? I mean, let's say the global capital reinsurance market is 600 billion. And so th that would imply there's capital raised of roughly 40 billion. When one sets that against even one single event like COVID, but if one sets that against the backdrop of all the losses over the last four to five years, coupled with the size of the potential under-reserving that I believe is there, then this amount of capital is like a rounding diff. What I'm still observing, I think that the big primary carriers are still cutting exposures and line sizes. They're behaving in a very responsible fashion. Previous hard markets, if I look back, were probably, to some extent, event-driven. World Trade Center did happen on the back of some pretty bad underwriting years. But World Trade Center, Katrina, and other claims 
Whereas this, I think, is an accumulation of pain over a period of time, which is meaning that the market is reassessing itself at the primary end. So that's why I also believe in the longevity of the hard market under these circumstances. Are there still opportunities anyway within, because we talk about things in the aggregate, and as a journalist, obviously, that's one of my jobs is to look at things in the aggregate and look at the big picture. But there is technically abundant capacity on an aggregate basis, but presumably there are still opportunities where in a class or geography basis, there are shortages. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the specialty lines that we've seen, particularly coming out of the London market and Lloyd's, there's been quite a lot of disruption within markets like that, where they've realigned and had to readjust their portfolios. So really good, what I would call technically competent experienced underwriting teams are short of capacity. That's a great example for us where we've got access to the brokers and the producers of that business. We've been able to see some opportunities there where we've been able to support them predominantly on a quota share basis. As you're moving through your business plan, we've gone through the 1st of April and we're looking ahead now to the mid-year renewals. How's everything going against plan at the moment? Yes, well, we have to be very conscious of being a listed company in terms of what we can and can't divulge, but we had a year one plan of $472 million. Split roughly 50-50 between quota share and excessive loss. And in terms of the traction that we've made since we started, it's been fantastic. We had a great reception from the clients. In terms of the security acceptability of the company, that's been tremendous across the brokers and the client base. And I would say at this stage that we're well on track for our plan. That's probably as much as I can say at this stage, given where we are in terms of market information, but very much on plan. So you're happy with the sort of showing you're getting, that you're being shown the sort of risk you were hoping to be shown? Yeah, tremendous. And I think that goes to the depth of the team that we've recruited when we've initiated the conversation with clients and with the brokers. We're doing that with individuals in our team that have been around for several decades in some cases. In our team that has brought a lot of depth in terms of not just broker contacts, but client contacts. And the recognition and the comment has been made to us several times that we're not in the insurance business. We're a pure play reinsurer. So our clients, in that respect, they don't see us as a threat in their own underlying primary markets. And that's actually been a real strength in getting us onto the security panels. Given all this uncertainty and uncertainty over rate adequacy over the last three or four years, how happy are you that what you're putting on books today is going to be making a good return for you in the future? Yeah, very much. You know, a big part of that is what I would call technical underwriting and obtaining a fair share of the premium. We have a great deal of experience within the management team, but also the way that the actuarial models are put together. We work with the underwriters. We're looking back always at history and recent history in terms of the trends that are emerging. And the team have always been very much aware of having to provide for those in the way in which we price products going forward. So I feel very confident that we're writing these classes of business with our eyes open and very much open to the ways of the world now. I'm just presuming, given you've got a clean balance sheet, new business, good business plan, and a very focused business plan as well, so with no conflict, I would just presume that M&A is just something you're going to be absolutely not on the table. Is that right to sort of completely discount it as someone who's an observer? If one looks back at previous cycles, there is very little M&A as you go through the teeth of a hard market and everyone focuses on organic growth. And 
when we were doing the analysis and in the slides we had the IPO, there was an enormous amount of M&A happening between about 2014 and 2018, sometimes at in excess of twice book value. So we've set up, we absolutely do not have M&A in our plan. And the mantra really is we just want to stick to our knitting. A good solid expression. Well, in terms of expansion, organic growth, if you were to open a second platform or a third platform outside Bermuda, where would that be if you were going to expand in that way, if you felt that you needed to have another platform to get the access to the business that you wanted? It's a very leading question. We've been clear right from the outset that... In Singapore, I, I don't know, it could be in Madrid, you know. Cornwall. <laughs> Is that, Cornwall's very nice, but there's some of you. No, we've been clear from the outset that the strength of the reinsurance model for us is being based in one location, decision-making in one location, and being able to pick our way through and manage the market as a group. So for us, being based in Bermuda and establishing the team and the function there, that's where our horizon is at the moment. I would also add to that, we've seen it in previous cycles, people will underwrite the very hard market. And then after a while, they start to either diversify or open up businesses in other jurisdictions. That's just something we actually want to really avoid. The Lloyds platform comes and then there's something else and then there's foray into casualty and then there's suddenly buy a crop insurer and all sorts of other things. Yeah, so that's not for us. So having said that then, does this mean that you're more likely to be a seller at some point once you've built the business? If you're not going to keep going forever and keep it really simple, that's sort of in my brain is ticking off the question to ask you, would you be a seller at some point therefore? If one looks at some of the other players in the sector, there are some companies that have managed to develop fantastic shareholder value over a long, sustained period of time. And so my view on that is that we have set out to develop a model that generates shareholder value across an insurance cycle. That's the aim. I've never been afraid of being on the receiving end or selling businesses, but at the outset, the intention is not to have a five-year burst and then put the company on the market. It is to develop a really outstanding business model and generate cross-cycle shareholder value. There are some peers that have really done that in the insurance sector. On that line, as a small player, I want to ask you how you're going to differentiate yourself in a market where reinsurance buying has changed hugely in the last 20 years large global seedants with large global programs being supported often by very large global reinsurers. Where do you want to play to differentiate yourself in that kind of marketplace? Okay. As I said at the start, one of the key aspects for us is to build a diversified book of exposures that essentially has balance within it. So one of the ways in which we undoubtedly are differentiating already is bringing insurance knowledge, I would say, into the treaty world. So the way in which we've gone about our recruitment is having a very good, sound insurance background within the underwriting teams. It enables us to perhaps look at less vanilla or less standard products that are coming through. So what we're finding, even those larger clients that you're referring to, very often are asking for classes of business to be blended together or wordings perhaps to be presented to us to take a view on, which I think we're able to do with a strong insurance background to our team. And that is a differentiator. So we're not just looking to present ourselves as, if you like, a cookie cutter 
will write a block of commodity wordings to a client and then follow that through thick and thin. So for us, it's very much a question of picking your way through what may be deemed to be tougher classes and tougher wordings, but bringing value to clients and be able to assess and underwrite those. Mark, I also see our size as being one of the USPs. So we are large enough to have critical mass and the right credit rating and to be impactful. But we also are small enough to be nimble. We can supply service. We can empower and have decision-taking without bureaucracy. For us, to change direction is easier than if you were an enormous organization. And that applies both in terms of tech, it applies in terms of regulation, all those things. And I think even in the recruitment of some of the staff, the feedback we get is it is highly attractive to go into a business of the size of Conduit. So really, that's sort of bringing everything together. Is that partly why you want to keep things simple, be all in the same place, so you can give brokers and students quick decisions and someone answers the phone or gets an email? If it's beyond their knowledge or authority, they can quickly get authority from one of you to do things quickly and turn things around. Is that, so if you want to have a lean operation, would that be putting words in your mouth? I think that's a very good summary. And the ability to bring skill sets together at short notice to problem solving, if we call it that, I think is a real asset. And that's, you know, it's part of our ethos and part of why we want to be in that one location to enable that interchange, I suppose. You've been talking about financial legacy and you, of course, being free of any of that. This is the first time that I've ever seen as an observer looking at a new capital formation class where that class has mentioned that they didn't have any technological legacy. You mentioned that a little bit at the beginning about the service offering. And Neil, obviously, you're an entrepreneur. You've also had technologically themed investments over the years. Is that particularly something that's important to you now? Is it more of an advantage, certainly, than it was 15 years ago? If you ran an organization that had a very big existing computer system with years and years and years of legacy data on it, to implement something new from scratch is really tough. And the bigger the organization, the tougher the IT project becomes. So it's been a wonderful luxury to be able to take a blank sheet of paper and say, what are the best systems that are out in the marketplace? How can we cobble it together? to give our underwriters the access to data, pricing models, straight through processing. What will the market look like in the near-term future in terms of connectivity? And one of the aspects of COVID was a revolution in the way business was broke and distributed. If you'd said to anyone five years ago, 100% of your renewal season will be done over a screen, they would have said, I don't believe you. And we've just seen it. So being early stage and not having legacy data issues it gives us an enormous benefit in tech. We had Matthew Wilson, some of your former colleagues at Brit, talking about how they finally got onto the cloud. But I would have to listen back for the exact details, but it was about two years, I think, it had taken to extract all that data out of whatever green screens and other bits and bobs to take it out of servers and without losing it and put it onto cloud safely. And they're finally just about to sign off on it, I think. Now, I suspect he was probably having to suck some of that data from systems that I knew all those years ago. Absolutely. I think we've already established the answer to this question, but I want to talk to you about it again. Uh, I think it would be illustrative to ask you. We're in this fantastic period for InsureTech and Neil, and obviously as a technology-themed investor of longstanding, would you want to position in some way Conduit as an InsureTech? I'm, I'm sure you'd like to get those sort of valuations that some of the IPO'd now growing public sector of InsureTechs 
I'm sure you'd love to get that kind of return for your investors. Does it tempt you? I think we've already established that you're not a technology company, but would you like to be seen as being a more technological one than your peers, perhaps? So let's be clear, we are not an insurer tech. We will be rated according to the quality of our earnings as a reinsurer. We would love to be one of the best practitioners that uses some of the outputs from InsurTech and uses good technology. But I think my memory would go back to .com. And there were plenty of other businesses in legacy sectors, such as supermarkets or pharmacies or all of those things, who have deployed modern technology. It didn't define those businesses, but just gave them better distribution, cheaper access to market, those sorts of things. So we'll use tech, but we are not an insure tech. And I hope that we deliver the quality of ratings that our share price reflects that of a high quality reinsurer. So is your strategy really to engage, to make a home where these insure techs can come? I presume also you're more interested in the strand of insure tech that is really about analyzing data, getting data in and making you a better underwriter or allowing you to triage risks as they come in or to rate things and also control your accumulations and mid and back office as well. Yeah. So any technologists listening is that obviously you're in the market for any of these new whiz bangs that they've got and you've got a platform that's going to be hopefully open to all of, all of that. Well, I love looking at things. Our plans are pretty far advanced in terms of the systems that we're deploying and what we're doing in the near term. But yes, if there's distribution models that are out there that assist us in our core business, then yeah. But as a user, I'm probably not an investor. But suppose as someone who's built businesses before, what can you do to future-proof? I suppose you're always trying to future-proof your investments in technology. And what have you done this time, bearing in mind all your experience and also the fact that the technology today does seem to be, this is always perhaps an illusion, but technology today always seems to be more future-proofable than it used to be. Although maybe the, the rate of change is accelerating. I mean, to my mind, I can look at, what's out in the marketplace today i mean sometimes you don't get paid for being too early and you don't want to play around with things that are very early prototypes so it's a judgment call in terms of making sure that what you have is sound and robust but is at the cutting edge and not at the bleeding edge so neil obviously you've started loads of businesses what you haven't done is start a business during a global lockdown so what's it been like and how have you adapted so the fundraise was extraordinary because we were able to operate on about four times the efficiency that we would have done under normal circumstances. So we were able to have about 150 investor presentations over a six-week period. And my memory of previous IPO roadshows is sitting in the back of bond and taxes in the pouring rain, just desperately worried about being late for the next meeting. And in this case, you can start in Europe at 8 a.m. You can work your way through the day. You have disciplined 40-minute sessions. People are always on time. And you can finish up on the West Coast of the States, pitching to a Californian fund manager at 10 p.m. And you can get the most extraordinary amount of coverage. And that was the upshot. And far from the lockdown being a difficulty, at the beginning of lockdown, people were saying, oh, there'll be no M&A, there'll be no fundraisers. And actually, there weren't that many. But we had a fantastic experience. Our advisors were wonderful. We at Kinmont, Jeffries and Panmures, and you can get a lot done electronically. I'm just going to add to that because I think there are certain parts of the process that it massively made more efficient. Neil's just said that in the number of investor meetings that we held. I'd say also in terms of accessing business, you know, the broking world has 
and embrace the electronic trading, remote trading. And that is actually very efficient now, more efficient than the old days of sitting in Lloyds and waiting for brokers to walk around with slips and hard bits of papers. So that's pushed on again in the last 12 months. Probably the one area that is more of a challenge, which I think a number of people have found this, is interviewing and recruitment. That's an interpersonal skill, and it should be, and recruiting and sourcing and interviewing people remotely is always going to be a challenge. So I think that's something we've all had to get to grips with and just had to work harder at that. But that was, I would say, more of a challenge than being able to do that face-to-face. So it's all really been more about people rather than other things. Yeah. And talking of people... What sort of a culture do you want to build at Conduit? What do you want people to know you for, first and foremost, that sort of reputation you want to build in the marketplace as being a certain type of shop? What would it want to be? Undoubtedly, we want to be an open and honest environment. So, as I said before, citing people together, being able to share information and share that openly back with clients and brokers as we realise that is very important to us. I think we ought to be seen as a sound, knowledgeable, underwriting shop. I'll use that word. We ought to be known for our ability to assess risks fairly, understand risk, price risks fairly, and communicate that back to clients. I can think back years gone by, and I always think that, and Neil, you're a broker, so you may want to comment on this, but I think the best underwriters are those that can say no or decline a risk, but they can say no because. And that's very important in our industry. So it's all very well writing risk, but when you decline business, you need to be able to articulate why you are not writing that risk and therefore articulate back to the client or the broker. And I think that just comes with the experienced individuals that you can recruit to bring that kind of culture into an organization and then pass that down. Trevor, I did think you were one of the best decliners in the business, especially when it came to my account. I do think that culture is completely critical. I think team, we recognise people as our absolute number one asset, avoidance of bureaucracy, embracing technology, and work hard, play hard. I think we've put a wonderful team together, and hopefully that's what will differentiate us in the years to come. And so in terms of that openness, Trevor, is it sort of place you feel that if you came in as a junior underwriter, you'd get access to senior people quickly and be learning the ropes, there's no sort of trade secrets or saying, oh, only Trevor knows how to do that. I'm a great believer in in recruiting people around you that are infinitely more knowledge than yourself. So in that respect, we've said that to the underwriters as they joined us, that to build the teams around you, strengthen your blind spots, because everybody needs to recognise they have blind spots, and then share your knowledge down into the teams. And that's very much the culture that we want to foster. I did appreciate it when people explained to me why they weren't doing something because it was very helpful. I didn't waste my time showing it to them again, knowing that they didn't do whatever it was. I just showed them why they didn't do it or why they didn't like it. So sometimes they didn't have necessarily have time they had to run off. You can explain to me why later because I really need to get this thing placed. But otherwise, it was always really useful because it was part of a learning process. Those horror stories of 1970s Lloyds or 60s Lloyds where underwriters would literally just throw things they didn't like on the floor. Underwriters that do that in hard markets don't tend to get big long queue of brokers seeing them in softer markets when they don't have to see them <laughs> anymore. So those things always come around. But thanks so much for not declining any of my questions, actually, unless the stock exchange rules will not allow you to answer them. You've been very, very open. And thanks very much for taking the time to talk to the Voice of Insurance. I've really, really enjoyed chatting with you. I hope I've managed to get the best out of you. 
good luck with the build. Everything's going to be moving so fast that probably this time next year, you know, the business is going to be at least twice the size I expect. And when that does happen, do make a date in the diary and come speak to us again and give us an update on how things have changed. So thank you so much, both of you. Well, Mark, thank you. I've enjoyed it. And thank you for your questions. Yeah, thanks very much. Great. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me. Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.